Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, editor-at-large at The Block. And today, joining us on the other side of the mic is our guest, Brett Harrison, founder and CEO of Architect, a new platform for traders and trading firms that's aiming to unify liquidity for digital assets across different types of markets. We're going to be discussing Architect's journey, what Brett's doing over there, the pain points that he's addressing in the market, as well as Brett's journey in crypto. But before we dive in, I want to take a moment to thank our sponsors. Have you ever wanted to use DeFi without being seen? Railgun is a leading DeFi privacy solution on Ethereum. It's also a leading privacy solution operating across Binance Smart Chain, Arbitrum, and Polygon 2. And yes, that includes DEX trading. DeFi and privacy together at last. Visit railgun.org to find out more. This episode is also brought to you by Flare, an EVM-based layer one blockchain with secure, decentralized access to information from other chains and the internet. Flare's native interoperability protocols provide developers with a variety of high-integrity price and event data, including detailed transaction proofs from other chains and information from Web2 APIs. Build better and connect everything at flare.network. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and not necessarily those of the blocks. Podcast guests may have taken positions in the assets or other matters discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For full terms, visit theblock.co slash terms dash service. Once again, Brett Harrison, thanks thanks for coming. I've I've heard that you've been hard at work coming into your offices in Chicago busy building architect. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing. Yeah, I'm actually uh, calling in from Chicago uh, in our office here. Uh, we're actually we're sharing our offices here with the Solana team. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a long story, but this office here was actually our previous FTX US office. So it's a little mm-hmm. bit surreal uh, being back in here, but um, that's crazy. <laughs> we uh, started this company um, almost two months ago now. And the inspiration for the company was, you know, while at FTX, as you know, a lot of the clients of FTX were non-retail. And by that, I mean everywhere from, you know, a high volume trader to a kind of small or medium hedge fund to like a big trading firm or asset manager. Mm-hmm. And the common thread that connects all these different clients is that they all had to build the same infrastructure. You know, whether you are trading to like a couple of exchanges or to a lot of different exchanges if you have to use different you know custody platforms especially sort of qualified custodians given all the recent rulings around that rules around that if you needed to connect to DeFi protocols there's just so much infrastructure to be able to kind of capture the full space of crypto connectivity and we thought well given all of our you know collective background inside mm-hmm. of trading firms building kind of similar systems to help traders be able to access different markets in an easy way, you know, we could do a good job building something like that for these potential clients. And so that's sort of what inspired uh, Architect. And that's what we started to build out. Um, uh, Since doing so, you know, we've uh, really started to think longer term about, you know, is Architect really just a platform for crypto? Or, you know, do we have potential to build something that sort of spans different asset classes as well? And so we're sort of thinking a lot about that as we kind of build out our first product. Mm-hmm. So you closed the $5 million 
round in January, uh, what should we expect to see in the coming months in terms of product rollout features? Yeah, so we hope to get out our first product in around a month or so. Um, we're working hard to get that kind of first uh, minimum viable product where you know maybe it connects to a few exchanges. It has you know some interesting bridges into uh, DeFi and some custody, uh, a little bit of cross asset, and uh, kind of an algo trading you know capabilities for the people who want to write to our APIs. And we expect that it to be um, hopefully a step function above what currently exists in terms of both a really great user interface for people to interact with crypto markets, either from sort of a visualization or research perspective, but also a um, kind of a discretionary trading, manual trading perspective, um, but also a really great set of APIs into our like, very low latency backend for being able to access all these different markets. I guess turning to current events a bit, um, you know, we're in a market now where we don't have these key infrastructure systems that connect all the different market participants with Signet gone and Send gone. Um, I think FTX was a participant in Sen. I don't know about Signet, but what do you think crypto market structure looks like in this post Sen SIG world? Um, is it, you know, places where you can trade becoming more concentrated, less liquidity already in a fairly capital constrained environment? Is that more volatility? Um, does the source of liquidity move to derivatives? I guess you could say it already is, but. I think there's three potential paths we have to look out for. So there's first the path where there's a number of banks that still bank, you know, crypto trading firms, crypto customers, companies, exchanges in the U.S. And previously, those banks couldn't really compete with the top two or three, you know, Silvergate and Signature being among them mm -hmm. uh, because they had such a large percentage of the market share. But now that they're gone, I, they're going, these other banks are going to come in and try to compete. And maybe they'll build their own, you know, 24-7 instant settlement network if you're working within their banks. So we'll see some of those come online. I don't know how long that's going to take. Is it going to be a month? Is it going to be six months? Are they going to face additional sort of regulatory headwinds? That's kind of unclear. Uh, the second is going to be, as you said, the push into derivatives. It's already been the case for a long time that the primary uh, source of volume in crypto is in the derivatives, not in the underlying spot. And there's a lot of reasons for that. You know, the ability to get, get capital efficiency on leverage positions, um, kind of be able to go short easily, being able to kind of long date potential exposure that you might have, um, not having to actually take custody of the underlying asset, all the classic reasons why in traditional finance, like futures are a traded product. Mm -hmm. And so for sure, I mean, you saw crypto futures on a CME spike in volume in like the early part of the year, mm -hmm. uh, primarily, I think, as a result of people losing faith in spot exchanges. And then the third is a different path than the other two, which is the potential for new exchanges or market structures to develop whereby more similar to the equities world, rather than having to you know, pre-fund exchanges in order to trade, which requires maybe instant settlement of USD across them, there would be some sort of like post-trade settlement. You know, in the equities world, like when you trade stock, you don't like wire your money to NASDAQ ahead of time and then go buy mm -hmm. Tesla. You buy Tesla and you settle up at the end of the day or the end of the settlement cycle. 
with how, how much stock you owe someone if you're selling or how much dollars you owe someone if you're buying. And uh, there are some discussions of new kind of upstart crypto exchanges that are going to operate more like that, where there might be off-chain matching and delayed potential on-chain settlements. And that might lessen the requirement of having these kind of instantaneous bank rails. Mm. So that would be interesting. Um, I wonder if, can an exchange do that? Like, would that require some cross-exchange collaboration? There's a couple of ways to do it. So within a single exchange, it's possible if you set up the right kind of on-chain, like proof of assets, you know, mm -hmm. prior to the trade and have some mechanism by which you, one, like lock those assets for trading and two, have some kind of fail mechanism whereby, it, let's say someone doesn't actually, you know, properly settle their trade, you know, after the fact that there's some sort of speed resolution. Um, but it doesn't quite answer the question of what you do with the traditional financial system because you can't lock someone's U.S. dollars in their bank account from an on-chain transaction. So I think it's going to require at least some partnership between a an exchange and some kind of you know regulated financial institution, you know, a bank, a trust company that's going to be able to work with them on this kind of post-trade U.S. dollar settlement. How was um, getting a bank for architect? Uh, luckily, it wasn't hard for us at all. Um, you know, there were definitely people who had recommended to me using Silicon Valley Bank when we started, <laughs> uh, which was like that. That was very typical. I mean, every startup is recommended. Oh, you should go to SVB. Um, it just so happens that like I had an existing relationship with you know a like systemically important bank and thought like for continuity reasons, I should just open a business account, at the same bank. And mm -hmm. so we got lucky in that sense, but you know, that's lots of people were, you know, seriously affected over the weekend. I mean, many people had near heart attacks wondering if they were going to make payroll this week. Yeah. Your bank was like, listen, we don't want to piss off Mr. Harrison. <laughs> we, we see what he's got cooking in there. I was at an investor summit uh, where one of my investors, and so there are a lot of founders at this particular event, and the news started to hit. Uh, I guess people were getting really concerned about solvency, and of course there was this like mad dash to exit, and so people kept like leaving the room and getting on phones, and you could see everyone just like their the blood draining from their faces as so they tried to kind of rush wires out from SDB as fast as possible, and of course. Like this partly kind of caused the actual issue. You know, there might not have been an issue if, you know, founders weren't encouraged to pull funds, but, you know, very difficult given the kind of current hysteria and environment. Well, when you've got Jason Kalkanis just winning ad nauseum, it makes it very difficult to. Can't, you can't ignore all caps. <laughs> There's been some fun memes that come out of it, like that he broke his golf button. Um, it's funny in the wake of everything that happened with FTX, there's a lot of questions that the regulators are all kind of working together to what is Nick Carter calling it operation choke point. It's interesting. I, I wonder um, like what your view is on the regulatory environment here, especially starting a, a, a new crypto firm, you know, I don't know if you can convince your wife to move to Singapore, but that might be the, a more regulatory certain environment? Uh, well, you're right about one thing. I'm definitely not going to convince my uh, 
wife and son, 11 animals to uh, get on a plane yeah, to Singapore. Yeah. I don't think they'd let you bring the animals there. I don't think so either. Um, but, you know, like Architect is like a registered Delaware C-Corp. You know, we are fully intended to build software here in the U.S. And, you know, I'm fairly determined to figure out how to do that, regardless of the steps that it takes, whether that requires, you know, eventual registration through one or multiple agencies. Um, it, we want to do that. And I, I do still believe that the U.S. markets are the strongest and healthiest in the world, and they're the right place to be able to build out long-lasting, mature financial infrastructure if we really want the crypto industry and, in general, like the kind of cross-asset landscape to continue to grow in the U.S. I think like my vision long-term is that the trading of crypto looks very much like the trading of anything else, even if the actual use case for crypto and the case for decentralization looks something like something very different than what we currently see in the traditional financial system. So I think it's important to develop these things in tandem and to figure out however it's possible to do so. And maybe that also involves you know, continuing to engage regulators um, in much of the same way that we have been trying to do you know, during the course of trying to build out the regulated businesses for FTX US. What was your experience like um, as president of FTX engaging with regulators? Did, did you get a sense that there was this cloudy sort of um, scary anti-crypto sentiment? I think there was a clear goal for the regulators in the U.S., which is, okay, we get it. This is a real asset class. It, you know, it's got a market cap of you know, between one and three trillion, depending on what time of uh, the last couple of years we're having this conversation. And the top trading firms in the world are trading it every day. The top financial institutions, you know, these big banks, are talking about building out entire sort of departments to experiment with blockchain technology. Maybe it's like the tokenization of fixed income products or you know, new settlement methods. This is not something to ignore, but we want to make sure that the same kind of entities that would be regulated in sort of traditional financial markets are regulated similarly in the crypto markets. And that doesn't necessarily mean all of it needs to be regulated that way. You know, there might be a very good reason why a smart contract, which you can audit the open source code underneath that smart contract, and you can transparently see all the transactions happening through it, might not need the same regulation as a entity that is taking clients US dollars and then holding on to them for the purposes of purchasing crypto and therefore acting much more like a broker. Um, but for, for those entities that are acting in a similar capacity as they would in the financial system today, that they need to be regulated similarly. And so as discussion on what does that look like, you know, how do we bridge existing rules to be able to cover crypto companies properly? And of course, now with everything that's happened, like the pendulum has swung more towards, you know, let's not assume this sort of sandbox for companies that aren't like quite within a regulatory envelope and letting them, you know, continue that way. It's sort of, let's try to enforce the existing rules as much as, much as possible because we don't quite yet know what rules to, to draw for these crypto companies. So I don't know. I think it's going to be slower than it was before, but I think largely the regulatory attitude around crypto is like pretty similar now than it was as it was, you know, a couple of years ago. Mm. You don't think it's worsened? I mean, of course, the sort of like the, the leniency uh, 
towards crypto. Maybe that's been uh, in some areas of the sector uh, has gone away. But I don't know. There's a lot of promising policy discussion happening right now, like a renewed push for stablecoin legislation, recognizing that you know a digital dollar is very important and could be an extremely useful tool for for banks, for for payment rails, for cross border payments, for for various governmental services. So that's very promising. Um, a renewed push to try to figure out which agency or some kind of cooperation between the agencies is ultimately going to regulate crypto. So, I mean, I'm always a class half uh, full kind of guy, but I, I am optimistic that there's, uh, there is still a significant force in Washington behind hoping that crypto gets properly regulated in the U.S. so that it can continue to thrive. What's client interest look like um, against this backdrop? Is this just, you know, are you dealing with a pool of existing market participants or are there new folks coming in? All the traders I talk to are deeply depressed. I'm getting like very sad messages all the time. I wake up to folks in Asia just saying it's all over. It's all over. It's a mix. And I've lived through a number of these events in my career. You know, I've seen like Lehman go under. I've seen like Knight Capital blow up in a day. You know, we've seen, you know, MF Global. There, there's so many instances where it feels like, man, this is, what does this mean for like the long lasting, you know, viability of these particular markets? And ultimately what makes markets great are that they are very resilient and they kind of, figure out how to kind of punish bad actors and reward good actors and it moves forward. And that's where I think we're going to be pretty soon too. I, I'm not one of these people who thinks like it's all over. Mm -hmm. Of course, there's a couple, a number of different like funds that raise money, let's say in 2021 or early 2022 to build out trading operations that ultimately had to fold because like their LPs pulled. And that of course is going to bring us kind of slow down to innovating on the client side. Uh, but there's still plenty of trading institutions that are, continuing to trade crypto in volume. They're continuing to build out their operations to trade crypto in volume. A number of more traditional firms that, let's say, are trading in the derivatives landscape who want to get into crypto derivatives and eventually into crypto spot. A number of traditional financial exchanges and other kind of brokerages that are still building out their digital asset operations that I'm talking to. So, yeah, I think it's all still moving forward and people shouldn't be so doom and gloom about it. Have you ever wanted to use DeFi without being seen? Railgun is a leading DeFi privacy solution on Ethereum. And it's also a leading privacy solution operating across Binance Smart Chain, Arbitrum, and Polygon too. Shield your funds and use them privately on your favorite DeFi apps. Railgun's cutting edge zero knowledge system encrypts your data from public view. And yes, that includes DEX trading. DeFi and privacy together at last. Visit railgun.org to find out more. This episode is also brought to you by Flare, an EVM-based layer one blockchain with secure access to information from other chains and the internet. Flare's state connector acquires detailed transaction data from blockchains and information from Web2 APIs in a decentralized way, so it can be used securely, scalably, and trustlessly in applications running on the network. Paired with the Flare Time Series Oracle for decentralized price and time series data, Flare delivers a developer 
developer-focused blockchain with secure native access to more off-chain data than ever before. Build better and connect everything at Flare.network. Can we talk a little bit about this thread that you had about uh, highlighting the problem of calculating and maintaining margin across DEXs? It's a 11-part thread. Sure. So what's the big issue here? So within a single exchange, um, let's say on the CME, you, know, you have different clearing members that are required to, on behalf of their clients, post collateral to meet you know, margin requirements on that exchange. And let's say you have not just a single futures position, but you have multiple futures positions, or you have a mix of futures and options position. You know, it's like a long a future, also long a put option on the same underlying that might require sort of different ultimate collateral or have different kind of portfolio characteristics than like looking at all the positions separately. And if you're one of these firms trading across many different products and many different kinds of assets, what Mm -hmm. you're going to look to do is get from your clearing firm the optimal uh, capital efficiency. So basically for as little upfront margin as possible, being able to put on the position you need. Um, Just to make this concrete, like if I was long a natural gas future on CME and short the same natural gas future on ICE because they have a similar product, although one is physical settled, one is cash settled, you would hope you wouldn't need to post double the margin, uh, you know, basically the full margin for the long position, the full margin for the short position. Of course, those two futures are cleared within different clearinghouses, the CME clearinghouse, you know, different from the ICE one. And so... Ultimately, what some of these FCMs can do is kind of post collateral on behalf of their clients and figure out how to net properly and maybe charge some interest for doing so. So now when you go to the decentralized world, you have all these different decentralized exchanges. Liquidity is way more fragmented there than it is in the world of traditional central clearing counterparties, uh, like for example, in the US. And all these different products that are actually very highly overlapping. Like a Bitcoin future, Bitcoin perpetual future is roughly the same as it is on DEX one as it in DEX two. Mm-hmm. If you're kind of long one on, on one and short on the other, you would hope, again, you wouldn't have to kind of post the same collateral to both. And mm-hmm. so something would be do the job of being able to manage the kind of optimal capital efficiency across the different DEXs. And so what I was saying in my thread was, you can imagine two worlds. You know, one is, that some kind of basically like centralized player, like an existing you know, FCM clearing member of an exchange could play that role on chain. Like they could basically mm. put up front capital into these smart contracts on behalf of clients where they can kind of see their full portfolios and act as a sort of lender into these collateral pools on behalf of the clients. But one thing that smart contracts could potentially do is make it so you wouldn't actually need that intermediary you can kind of build a kind of cross-dex composable uh, sort of smart contract-based risk management system. The smart contract does the job of the FCM. Potentially. Now, there's an open question of like, is that possible? You know, there's a lot of, let's say, kind of human touch to what an FCM is doing every day and their relationship with clients and being able to know that they can kind of count on a capital call if they need maybe that makes it a little bit more difficult in the automated world, or maybe not. Maybe it would be much more transparent 
and easier to administer and monitor if it were completely on-chain. And there are a couple existing platforms on uh, Solana, on Ethereum that are doing this kind of cross-dex you know, risk management, like Euler Finance being one of them. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see how these play out and whether they do end up kind of being able to functionally behave as you know, efficiently as a traditional FCM would. And this is something that you'd be able to link or connect folks to through Architect if someone builds that, or could you build that yourself? So the, the first goal for Architect is, you know, we're not building any of these endpoints ourselves. Like we're not building our own custody or our own DEX or our own centralized exchange. What we are doing is trying to bridge to as many of these venues as possible. And from the end user's perspective, making it just as easy to, you know, buy a but Bitcoin on Coinbase as it is to sell a future on the CME as it is to, you know, buy a an option on Hero Network on Solana, mm-hmm. like all from kind of one unified interface. Makes sense. Shout out to Hero, which I think they're bopping around you in Chicago there. Yes, I can actually see them out the little conference room here. They're they're also in this office. So I heard a few days ago you were like locked up in your your office there with a bunch of cameras for like seven hours or something. Oh, it did a different podcast. Yeah. <laughs> they just, you have eyes on the ground here, Frank. Uh, I do. Is that scary or what? Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I imagine, and then you tweeted that you've done six or so documentaries. It's documentary season. Yeah. There's, it's time for that finally. Right. Yeah. There's a lot of, you know, news outlets and various projects that are putting together, you know, the what happened story of FTX from largely similar, but sometimes like different perspectives and different media. So what, what did happen? Like, I feel like a large part of it was um, just concentrating control and pushing out those who disagreed or questioned. Yeah. I mean, following the, continual release of the you know the facts through like people's guilty pleas these complaints the indictments it's starting to paint a picture of what happened and it really does look like old-fashioned fraud like Mm. some very smart people it seemed to make the deliberate decision to do something that was criminal and not only do it but lie about it and hide it from their own employees, from their investors, from the customers, from the public for a very long time until, of course, that came crashing down. What was the, was there any signs or indications that, because, you know, you guys were from the outside, looked like thick as thieves, excuse the pun. Um, That was accidental. There was a point at which this sort of relationship like really strained out. And I, I think you said to me once that, and I think you've said this to media as well. Um, for the last few months, you guys just didn't speak at all. And I think you told him you were leaving via signal and he just sent like a thumbs up or something. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, there were no signs at all, at least to me and the people on the U.S. side, of anything like what we now know happened, anything related to this like alleged fraud. Um, there were certainly management concerns that I saw and and had. Um, And I talk about some of those, you know, fairly at length on, in my thread, you know, concerns around 
lack of communication, lack of good internal kind of management structures, lack of like hiring who we needed on the development side and also on the kind of senior leadership, kind of C-level side, sort of a resistance to critical feedback Mm -hmm. to Sam as my manager. And and just just what felt like interpersonal problems, like Sam and I just you know start really didn't get along anymore, and those were the primary reasons why you know I had to leave uh, as like a personal choice. But there was no real sign. I think in only in retrospect, like knowing everything we know now about what's happened, the fact that there were serious liquidity issues and liquidity issues that have been going on for quite a long time. The only thing I remember that kind of pieces into the story was, you know, the company wanted, really a big company, I mean, Sam wanted to pay bonuses to employees twice a year, you know, once at the end of June, once at the end of December. And Sam was always very uh, punctual about deciding those bonuses and paying them. So, you know, for the June bonuses, they happened in May. And for the December ones, they happened like early December or like end of November. and for the last one that I saw, and remember this is like after my like letter and effective resignation, um, that was supposed to be basically paid out the end of June. It wasn't actually given to most employees until the end of September. So mm. it was like close to three months late. And people within the company were kind of freaking out. Mm. Because Sam had announced to everyone like in May, hey, like we're gonna be paying bonuses soon and um, you know, they might be a little bit lower than what they were last year, because while we have kind of even revenue year over year, we're a lot bigger of a company and the market's down, we might have an extended period of lower liquidity. And when it became like weeks and then months of people not getting paid, people were very concerned. I mean, first of all, they thought like some people were counting on those checks for making rents. And secondly, mm-hmm. The, the, the news about the crypto industry was really bad. I mean, lots of layoffs in the crypto sector, lots of layoffs, layoffs across tech in general. Um, again, kind of concerns around this sort of domino effect of failing institutions. People thought, you know, are we losing our jobs? Is that why we're not getting paid? And what, you know, the management had, had sort of said, like the kind of the people directly around Sam was just like, oh, well, look, Sam's has been way too busy. Like he's been in like DC every other week and he's been you know, flying to the US for these conferences, and he's like meeting all these people, and he's just like very, very busy. And that's why he's haven't gotten paid yet, which like, checked out. I mean, he was doing all those things. He was very busy. And so again, it wasn't something that I or others thought twice about with regards to like a liquidity issue. That was like never something that we could have fathomed. But now in retrospect, it feels like that was almost seems like that was like a result of being concerned about paying people. Mm. Just getting a little PTSD, I guess, from that. From that. <laughs> yeah. I've talked about this enough that I've, uh, I think yeah. I've gotten over all of it to some extent. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if I have yet. Um, I feel like the the Bahamas thing was always kind of weird too. Like strange that they had to get like the nicest places, you know, in hindsight. Like they could have just could have rented a bunch of apartments in, in a building. Um, so there was definitely like a bit of flash with cash that kind of raised the red flag to me, but also didn't because it's, you know, they did make a lot of money, both firms. I, I had heard that the place was nice, but I didn't understand quite how nice, you know, I visited the Bahamas 
uh, I think three times mm -hmm. um, to sort of visit the office for a bit and try to meet people. I always brought my family with me. So it was never like on my list to go like hang out in the, you know, the dorm room uh, in, in Albany. So I, I never visited, but it, it was, it was just sort of a strange place in general. I mean, I would show up for like normal work hours, you know, call it like eight thirty to six thirty or something, or like nine to mm -hmm. six, or and there would be very few people there because they worked very odd hours. Like Gary once got in at five p.m. and like mm -hmm. left at four a.m. Or to the extent that like Sam was there, he was with his headphones on, like on calls all day, or doing media stuff, or podcasts, or interviews, or talking to investors and stuff all day. And so at some point it was like, well, what's the point of me even visiting here? It's not like I'm going to get a chance to talk to anyone that I need. This is just like a chance to go to a warm place with my, my wife. So I'm not really going to come that much. And that's why like, I kind of hardly visited, but it's, it's unbelievable just to see the, the scale of the, the money spent and how yeah. it was spent. So you weren't able to get like a sense of that, like a sense of the, the $2 million car fleet and bar tabs no yeah um anyway brett really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show yeah thanks so much always great to talk once again we've been joined by our guest brett harrison founder and ceo of architect uh you have a twitter you have a new twitter that was actually funny when you you, had, you went back to brett harrison 888 yeah. which is your twitter, i think and then you also have the new company account Yes, architect underscore XYZ, or the website is architect.xyz. Brand, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks so much. The Scoop will be back for you again with another great guest. Have an awesome day.